radical, countercultural definition of strength. God, we see the whole world tearing itself apart right now over a variety of definitions of strength. The only thing that the political sphere seems to agree on is their definition of strength, and that is power. And everywhere else in the world, Lord, people are competing with their particular definition of strength. But here we have this idea that strength is the ability to prove with our lives and our words that Jesus is the Christ. That that's what constitutes a strong church. It's capacity to show the world Jesus, all of Jesus, as we said last week. Would you please help us increase in this strength? And here, Lord, we have to say, because most of us know a lot about, a fair amount amount about Paul, we have to say that that might include being made weak. But Paul says that a thorn in his flesh was sent, and he prayed repeatedly that it be removed. And finally, God, you answered him and said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul says, I'm content in my weakness, for when I am weak, I am strong. Lord, would you give us this definition of weakness, and then Lord, or this definition of strength, and then Lord, would you let us believe that this is the right definition of strength, and that this is what we should be pursuing in our lives? Not so much uh, financial strength, or intellectual strength, or even physical strength, but that this be our definition of what true strength is. For a human being, true strength is the capacity to prove with our lives and our words that Jesus is Christ. Would you help us, Lord, with that, please? Please, Lord. And then, Lord, would you just bless these gatherings, these, these three gatherings we've set aside to, say, to speak explicitly into this idea, proving that Jesus is the Christ. Would you just bless this, Lord, in a way that, in a way that gives us strong encouragement and others strong grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated and you know what our text is. It's Acts chapter 9, verse 19. So if you'll turn there this morning, that would be great. The goal of this series, so the title of this series, as we've said before, is Proving Christ. And we get that primarily from our text at the end of verse Acts, at, at the end of Acts 9, 22, it says that Jesus was, or that Paul was proving that Jesus was the Christ. So there's a little skeptic in us all. Uh, some of us are capital S skeptics, and some of us are lowercase s skeptics. Some of us are not currently disciples of Jesus Christ, and some of us are. But in every heart, no matter whether we are fully on board with the whole Jesus thing or not, there is a little skeptic in all of us. And so one of the goals of this series will simply be to strengthen your understanding of the reasonability the viability of this thing we call the Christian faith, which is rooted all in this idea that Jesus is the Christ. And as we work our way through this, I want to make a couple of, of, of qualifications at the beginning. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving 
that Jesus was the Christ. So the first, uh, the first stipulation we should make, or the uh, first clarification we should make is, well, what does it mean <laughs> to prove that Jesus is the Christ? What does the word the Christ mean? Well, in the Greek, this is the word that means the anointed one. And so when someone would have heard that Jesus is the anointed one, well, what would that mean to them? Uh, it would mean that he was chosen the way that kings are chosen. For all throughout ancient history, kings were chosen by the anointing of oil on their head. And this is a tradition that extends not only in Judaism, but in many other cultures as well. So when someone's hearing in the first century, Jesus is the Christ, they're hearing Jesus is the king. Not a king, but the king. So what the Jewish audience is hearing when they're hearing this phrase, Jesus is the Christ, is Jesus is the Messiah. And their conception of the Messiah was really kind of a Superman king. He was the king over all the kings. This, this notion well established in Old Testament writings is that, Jesus, that God would send a king of Israel who would not only be the king of Israel, but who would draw all men unto himself throughout all nations, and he would be the king of all the kings. And we're coming upon Christmas time, and you can think of Isaiah and Handel's Messiah, king of kings and lord of lords. That's what the word Christ means. It kind of means this idea that Jesus is the ultimate center of everything. He's the ultimate aim of everything. All things were created by him, through him, and for him. So what we're trying to do is prove that. And that's what Paul was doing. Proving that Jesus was, is the center and proper aim of all human life. Okay, and We'll get more into that next week. Secondly, I want to talk about this word prove for a moment. Again, it says that proving that Jesus is the Christ. But if you look in the text in that verse, in verse 22, you'll see that prove isn't the same as convinced. As we see in the text, sometimes after presenting Christ, the best you can achieve with your audience is a kind of stalemate. It says that the Jews were confounded. It doesn't say that the Jews were convinced. <laughs> right? At the, at the end of the day, prove is not the same as convinced. Every field has its own burden of proof. So proving something in chemistry, this is important. This is an important uh, detail to remember over the next three weeks. Every field has its own burden of proof. So proving something in chemistry is different than proving something in quantum physics. Right? So every field has its own sort of this, you've proven this. And, and so, so we, we need to remember that, but we also need to remember that even when that field's burden of proof is met, not everybody is convinced. Has anyone else kind of my age or, or you know, around my age, were you kind of freaked out when you realized there's a whole flat earth movement happening right now? I thought it was 100% a joke, and I thought that was pretty funny. I thought, good, that's a good joke. Let's keep doing that. Uh, and then I realized that, no, this isn't, this isn't only a joke. Like, for a lot of people it is, but there are a lot of people who have been sucked into the wormhole of the joke and now believe that the earth is flat. And this is a good example of what I mean by uh, proof of something doesn't mean convincing everyone, right? Because 
I think we've established enough proof to know that the earth is not flat, um, but that doesn't mean that everybody's convinced. Now, the other thing that I think is important when we talk about this in this kind of way, when we start saying to unbelievers, hey, I want to actually tell you why I think you should believe in Jesus. I think we have to know what our presuppositions are and speak to those presuppositions. We don't want to import a bunch of things that we're assuming into the conversation that they aren't assuming because we're never going to like be able to speak to them if we're not anticipating or understanding our own presuppositions. Now, I'm going to deal with uh, one of those next week, and that is, are we super confident that Jesus was a historical figure and not just a myth? Now, I'll just say right now, yes. Across all fields of scholarship, the consensus, secular or Christian, Jewish, whatever, the, the, the consensus across all realms of academia is that Jesus was indeed a historical figure. So we'll deal with that one a little bit more next week, but it's going to come up, obviously, today as we begin talking about proving that Jesus was the Christ. So one of our presuppositions is we actually believe Jesus was a real person, and that seems to be well-established and sort of above the threshold of, I think we're, we're entering flat-earth territory if we would seek to deny that. Okay? The second presupposition is, was there really a historical man named Paul? And again, I would say that, that that burden of proof has been fully met. And again, while not everyone is convinced, we would probably be safe. All academics, again, from all the different uh, spots of belief, would agree that like above this threshold of proof, you're just in the flat earther territory. So probably the, the most important presupposition or the most contested presupposition that I should speak to isn't whether Jesus was a real person that's pretty much all agreed upon. Or if Paul was a real person, that's pretty much all agreed upon. The third presupposition that's worth talking about for a moment is, is this. We are presuming, when, when we talk about proving Jesus is the Christ, there's a presupposition we're importing into these conversations that I think is very important to say explicitly, and that's this. We are presuming that the New Testament as it exists today meets the historical burden of proof for being a reliable recounting of actual events which took place in the life and times of Jesus and Paul. Okay, So this is a big one. We're, we believe that the New Testament is a reliable historical accounting of events which took place in the first century around the lives of men like Jesus and Paul. Now, I actually also believe, as do many of you, that it is more than merely a historical document. But we will speak, especially when we get to the historicity of the resurrection, we will speak from the position of simply what we would again say is sort of the consensus among uh, people that are experts in this field, and that is, is it, are, are these documents themselves reliable? Okay. Are they reliable accounts of historic events? Now, Let's, let's, let's establish this one a little bit further because this is going to be relevant down the road. And, and in order to establish this claim that the New Testament is a reliable accounting of historic events, we need two things. We need to see a lot of manuscripts that kind of agree with each other. And we need to see them from all kinds of different people and places and uh, it even like languages would be ideal. And then 
Uh, the second standard of proof for this particular field of study is we want a lot of manuscripts, and then we want, uh, we want those manuscripts to be as close to the actual event as possible. So those are sort of the burdens of proof for this particular field uh, of exploration. So based on those two burdens of proof, do we have a lot of manuscripts, and are those manuscripts, how close are those manuscripts to the actual events they're recording? So, so let's talk about this for a minute. Based on the burden of proof for ancient documents, we have to compare apples to apples. So we're going to look at Aristotle, Plato, uh, Caesar's account of the Gaelic Wars, Homer's Iliad. And we're going to, I made a couple charts for you. Uh, so yay, uh, yay, MacBook, super easy. Uh, so so this, is, this is what we have in terms of manuscript copies. Now these numbers are changing every year. So, you know, Next year, we'll have to update these. We, we actually just had to update Aristotle and Homer in a big way this year. Found a lot of manuscripts from them. So, so we have 1,000 manuscripts of Aristotle. We have 210 manuscripts of Plato's work. We have 10 of Caesar's uh, account of the Gaelic Wars. We have uh, 1,757 Homer uh, Iliads. And then we have 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. So... I'm not very good with numbers, and I'm not very good with conceptualizing numbers. I'm more of like a people person, so maybe this is only for me, but I want to try to illustrate this this way. Suppose we had 279 people in this room, and we separated them. What we did was we just like we just moved the decimal point down all the way to the lowest possible number. So we had 279 people in this room, and we separated them. We all handed them all signs, and we separated them by numbers. So I'm going to give 10 of you Aristotle sign. I'm going to say, you go stand over there, right? Because we have 1,000 copies of Aristotle. And, and I'm going to give, um, I'm going to give uh, tw- two of you uh, Plato's manuscripts, and you're going to stand over there. And then I'm going to give none of you Caesar's manuscripts because he just kind of falls off the page when we start reducing these numbers. So I've got 10 people over here who are Aristotle, and I've got two people over here who are Plato, and then I'm going to have 17 people say back there, who are Homer folks. That leaves 250 people in the center of the room representing, in proportionality, the total number of manuscripts of New Testament work that we have. So imagine a room where, imagine, imagine we're playing some sort of like capture the flag game, and the teams are 10, 17, uh, and 250. Like who's, you know, just, you just, it's just hard to get a grasp for how overwhelmingly uh, significant the manuscript evidence is for the New Testament compared to other historical documents. So the next thing we always look at in this particular field, remember, every field has its burden of proof. These are not, these are not uh, jiggered to, like, make my case seem better. This is just that these are some of the burdens of proof used in this particular field of ancient his- history. So the, the first one is, how many manuscripts do we have? Another one is, is like, how close to the actual events are these manuscripts dated? And, and the tricky thing there is, for all of these manuscripts, is they were written on stuff that was compostable, right? And not only that, but like people would reuse it. So we think there are lots of manuscripts of, of New Testament fra- fragments of, of manuscripts like used as mummies. But, you know, we'd have to break those mummies open to, to know for sure. But, but we think that based on some scanning and so on and so forth. 
So we're looking at like how close to the actual event, and this is, makes sense for history, right? How close to the actual event are these manuscripts? So, well, um, Aristotle, the first manuscripts we have of those events came 1,200 years after the event. So 1,200 years after Aristotle is the first manuscript we have. 1,200 years after Plato is the first manuscript we have. 900 years after Caesar, that's the first manuscript we have. Homer's Iliad, 400 years after the Iliad, that's the first dated manuscript we have. New Testament, two to 300 years. Very convincing in terms of proximity as well. So, so again, with my people over math thing, uh, imagine if we did this. We said, year zero is this wall. So all of these events happened here at this wall. Now let's space our people out accordingly. Let's cut the numbers off of the decimals like we did, like up, up, move the decimal like we did last time. And let's turn years into feet, okay? So year zero is this wall, and we would put a Christian two to three feet away from this wall. So years and feet, that's the thing to remember. I hope this isn't confusing. And then we've got Homer, and, and the Homer people are... are um, you know, a foot behind the Christian people. So pretty reliable Homer is, Homer's Iliad. Now, where would Plato's people, where would Plato people be and where would Aristotle people be? You would be on I-35. So just to illustrate the massive difference in quality and quantity of New Testament manuscript evidence, there you go. So, so that's just a really quick, very quick, very simple explanation of, well, yeah, we, we believe that the New Testament is more than a reliable history, but we don't believe it's less than that. And there's no reason we should, based on the very standards that ancient historians use for understanding history in general. So that presupposition seems to check out at the level that we're applying it. Today, we're mostly going to ask another question, though, and that is, how does Paul's pain prove Christ? How does Paul's pain prove Christ? So let me first give you an explanation for why I could say Paul's pain, and most Christians would kind of be like, yeah, that, that, dude, that dude suffered a lot. You know, when I say Paul's pain, like the people who know Paul are like, yeah, you know, Paul had a lot of pain. So way back in, not really way back, a few verses back in Acts 9, Jesus says to Ananias, who was Saul's first Christian friend, uh, go to him, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Now this tells us that it was Jesus's intention to use the suffering of Paul to prove that he was the Christ. So I think I'm on solid ground here when I say this is one of the evidences or arguments that Paul used, even if he did so passively, to prove to others that Jesus was the Christ. So now the kind of question is, well, what's the pain of Paul and how, how is it used to prove that Jesus is the Christ? So let's look at the pain of Paul. It's partly reflected in verse 21 when it says that others hearing about Paul, all who heard of him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? 
the pain of Paul is already creeping into our story at the very beginning of his story, not only because of what Jesus predicted would be true, but also because we see almost immediately Paul switches sides from the majority culture with all the power to arrest and kill to the minority culture with no power. So he immediately shifts into a more difficult and painful position than the one he held previous to to, to arriving in Damascus. He's now on the other side of the ball, and it's kind of of like that, that, that really bad mismatch. It appears to be that really bad mismatch. There's just no way this puny little team of upstart Jewish Christians have anything uh, they can do against the power of established Judaism. And so Paul, for some reason, chooses this. He, he moves into a position of pain. And shortly thereafter, in verse 23, it says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night, and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So, so he went in on the side of the establishment, seeking to arrest and probably kill uh, other Christians. He went out of Damascus in a basket. It's not, it's like kind of automatic man card rejection there, you know, hiding in a basket. <laughs> Haven't hidden a basket in a long time. Haven't seen a basket big enough to hide in a long time. Hiding in a basket, lowered on the side of the wall, because already this early in Paul's life, uh, pain is becoming a thing. Already early in this life, Paul's like seeing how much he must suffer to prove that Jesus is the Christ. And you know what's really interesting, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, is like most of the time he didn't run. Most of the time he walked into the pain. This is one of the rare times where we see him leave. Most of the time he walked into it. That'll be significant here in a moment. So let's just kind of just get an overview very quickly, take a couple minutes of Paul's pain. Um, church historians believe that he was imprisoned at least seven times. And we know from, again, historically reliable accounts uh, that Paul w- had many attempts on his life. He was arrested repeatedly. He was resisted repeatedly. He was abandoned repeatedly. Rough abandonment is. He was ridiculed. Paul gives a partial summary of his sufferings in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. So he was whipped five times with 39 lashes each time. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure of me, on me, of my anxiety for all the churches. Yeah, Paul's pain means a lot. There's a lot in that phrase. So here's the question. How did his pain prove that Jesus is the Christ? Well, let's ask two questions related to that. Firstly, why was there so much pain? 
Why were so many so violently opposed to this message? And two, let's ask, why did Paul keep pressing into the pain over and over and over again? So firstly, let's, let's try to answer this first question. Why was there so much pain? Another way of asking that is, why did so many people so violently oppose the message that he brought? Now, I'll tell you, there's, there's a couple reasons why I like asking this question, and one of them has to do with that whole historicity thing. It is absolutely historically indisputable that Christianity, from its outset, suffered extensive persecution from both the Jews and the Gentiles. That's, that's historically indisputable. So I'm starting from a position that's just undeniable. And I'm asking, let's make sense of this phenomenon. Let's ask, like, why? Why did this happen? Why, for instance, why would Jews in the first century persecute other Jews who were proclaiming Jesus was the Messiah? And why would Romans, who were like, um, man, what's the, they were the easy girl in high school, like they like they were they, they were they were okay with everybody, you know, every religion, you know, like like why would the Romans suddenly decide, nope, not this one, when like really they're super permissive, super permissive. So why suddenly not this one? Why the fierce persecution coming from people in their own ethnic group, and then people who are kind of globally known at the time as saying like you got a god we'll just add him to the list welcome new god of course we know from Acts 17 in fact that 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 paul was walking into the city of athens and he sees an idol uh, inscribed to an unknown god that's how open (laughs) the romans were it's like hey maybe there's one we don't know about let's put a statue up just in case so i like this uh, line of inquiry which is why was there so much pain and opposition Because it's historically undeniable that there was a ton of pain and opposition. And it doesn't depend on Paul at all. Like, like we we can dismiss Paul and say, there are a bunch of other Christians who have suffered historically, and we know this. I like it for a second reason, and that is because I think it is always good to look at the ideas that a culture oppresses and ask, why are these things being pushed down? It's always interesting to try to understand the group of people that the rest of the society wants you to ostracize, castigate, dismiss. It's always a very interesting... Now, sometimes there might be good reasons for that, like they're just weird or whatever, but, but uh, it's always... I, I always want to look and say, why are you telling me not to look? Or any of you like that when you're driving down the highway and your parents are like, don't look? And they're like, well, I'm definitely looking now. <laughs> So back in the late 80s and 90s, I had this short run. You guys know how much I love music. I had this short run where I was all about punk. And I listened to the Sex Pistols and the Ramones. And, and like, honestly, by then I was already a musical aficionado, like you know today. But uh, so I had high standards, high musical standards. But the thing about punk that was so interesting was, like, they were literally trolls before trolls were trolls. Like, the whole goal of punk music is let me find what you reverent, reverence and let me step on it. Like, that's the whole point of punk. 
It's like, let me find the thing that the culture values and then beat it to death with a guitar. Like, that's the whole idea. And that was really attractive to me when I was 12. The whole idea was to trigger people. The whole idea was to provoke people. To figure out what people held dear and then smash it into pieces and see what they do. Now, I've matured a little bit. A little bit. My, I'm not like I'm not into that kind of music anymore. But that idea, that idea, it's like why are people so freaked out if I kick this over here? That idea is interesting. And so when we ask, why was there so much opposition to Paul, to the gospel message, when like literally these people were nothing? Nothing. They had no army. They had no treasury. They were meeting in houses. What, what, what's the deal with that? Well, I think the inevitable answer, again, trying to be as honest as possible and not throwing any extra presuppositions in, I think the inevitable answer is there was so much violence and opposition to the gospel because the gospel is profoundly disruptive. It, it, it is profoundly disruptive. And so if you're not a Christian and you're trying to like explore this with some intellectual capacity, you just ask yourself, like, what's the deal with that? Why is this idea so disruptive? Why, why did it turn the super permissive Romans, you know, into like lion feeder, you know, Christians feeding, feeding Christians to lions. Like what, what happened there? Why did it turn an ethnicity against itself? As is the case in first century Judaism. It's like, what is so disruptive about this message? And the other thing you could ask is, what, what, why is it disruptive or how is it disruptive? So, so here's the deal. And this is just a super veneer level exploration but but i could say these things with confidence the gospel overthrows expectations which it did in israel the gospel overthrows countries which it did in rome the gospel overthrows institutions as it did in the reformation and the gospel overthrows industries as it did in the slave trade in britain through william wilberforce so these are big things expectations, countries, institutions, and industries, the gospel is a threat to all of those things. And it overthrows lives. And if it didn't overthrow lives, it wouldn't overthrow those other things, right? So the gospel simply turns the world upside down. That's my explanation for the opposition. It is a threatening message. Jesus says very clearly to his disciples, we just don't, use the, we just don't usually put this one up on our wall I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. The early disciples are described as men who were turning the whole world upside down. We don't have to really peer into the uh, motivations for all this opposition because we're told explicitly why people were oppressing Christians. They were freaking them out. There's a, a moment where, where Paul uh, really just, I think, I think everyone thought they'd killed him. 
in a city called Ephesus. And what's going on there? Like, why, why, why was that such a big deal? Why did Paul end up, you know, dead, dead and unconscious, or maybe dead and raised, uh, on the road outside the city? Well, it, it was overthrowing an industry. There was an idol industry, and it was overthrowing it. And, and so you have to be able to look at someone like Paul or just the reality of Christian persecution in the world at, at the first century, but, but also in the world today, which I'll speak about in a moment, and ask, why so much opposition? Especially for people who don't have a military and seem to be more or less trying to do what Paul himself said to do, and that is do your best as much as it depends on you to live quiet and peaceful lives. Romans 12, 18, something like that. So you could ask this question. Why is China today working so hard to oppress its own Christian citizens? How do you think I'd fare if I flew to Pakistan right now and started preaching Christ in the public square? And what is your explanation for how you think I would fare. Why did the USSR fight so hard to expunge Christianity from its communist vision? Why is that being done in Cuba? Here's a hint, and this might help you in other places too. All of these countries are not opposing Christianity because it isn't inclusive enough. Or because it's full of hypocrites. That's not why they're opposing Christianity. They're opposing Christianity because it is a weapon of mass destruction against corruption, oppression, shame, and guilt. So maybe that's the real explanation for when we see it opposed here, why it's opposed here, and not inclusivity or social sensibility. Maybe we just go with the last 2,000 years of history and think it has something to say. Very early on in the Gospel of John, Jesus says a verse that everybody knows. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Here's the part we don't know. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the Son, the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light. Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light. Lest his works be exposed. That seems to be the explanation for all of the Christian pain in the first couple of centuries of its origin. That's obviously entering into the realm of metaphysics, right? I'm, 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 I'm suggesting value statements here. So let me, let me make you equal, doubly crazy if you're outside of uh, looking in right now and just say, say it this way. If you aren't a Christian right now or looking for proof that Christianity is true or false, why not? 
I think that's one of the best evidences that there is something to all this. If someone publishes a book and it's kind of a, a book that's got a lot of buzz and people are talking about it and there are podcasts about it, you'll, you'll probably buy the book. You guys are smart people. People that are watching this are smart people. Um, you'll, you'll read the book. Whether that book is, you know, Tribe or, or uh, oh gosh, I can't remember. There's just, you know, there's, there's all sorts of books that have sort of been, uh, you know, kind of, um, you know, put forward as like sort of like these are the moment, these are the cultural moment books, and we all read them, and and and, and not Christians or not or Christians are not Christians. Like we just read the books because not because we necessarily believe them, but because we're like, well, if everybody's thinking about this, I think I'd like to know what it says. So so then you apply that same standard of proof again, standard of proof, and you say, okay, so there's this guy named Jesus who seems to be somewhat influential. Why are you avoiding him? Was Jesus an inconsequential figure? Is it, is it because there aren't, aren't enough Bibles? <laughs> you don't have access to, to the Bible? So that's the other question. It's like, why haven't you read the Bible? Have you read the Bible? Have you read the Gospels? Look at your own reasons for avoiding the things you avoid, and you'll probably find a massive chunk of life to be had and enjoyed if you would just stop avoiding the thing you're trying to avoid. Anybody else here go through seasons of life, maybe you're in one now, where you avoid paying the bills until the last second? Anyone here ever avoid getting a cholesterol test or stepping on a scale? Now, what's happening there? Is it that you're afraid of bad news? No, you're confident of bad news. You're not a, you know the bad news is there. That's not what you're avoiding. You're avoiding a moment in which you will be called to choose. And that's what is very interesting about the pain in Paul's life. He was provoking the world to decide. A man named Jesus, born in Bethlehem, lived a pretty remarkable life, was crucified buried and raised. We'll talk about whether that's true two weeks from now, the raised part. By the way, I believe it is. Uh, but we'll try to prove that. Paul brought that message into the world, and if that message is true, it disrupts everything. It disrupts everything. Earlier, I showed you some manuscript evidence, and I was like, well, you know, we have Plato, we have Aristotle, we have Homer. Here's the funny thing about all that. They're not asking you to change your sex life, <laughs> right? Like, they're not telling you you have to reorient your life and worship one person. Like, they're not telling you to, to, to do di- something different with your money. They're not, they're not telling, where, telling you where you should be on Sunday morning. In other words, there's not, the, the reason we don't look at the Bible seriously is not because it's unreliable, but because it's uncomfortable, And this is still, just so we're clear, all under this heading of, let's explain the pain of Paul. Why was there so much opposition? But now we're talking about individuals, and we're saying, why are you as an individual doing the la-la-la-la with the Jesus thing? Like, Why are you avoiding it? Are you avoiding it? Now, I have to say that if you're uh, not a Christian and you're listening to this, then 
to some extent, you're not avoiding it. You should be commended. I would just say that like this particular question is worthy of a few weeks of late night thought and conversation. I think the fact that you, if you haven't done that yet, I think that might actually be a proof that there's something to this whole gospel message. Because it looks like an uncanny amount of avoidance around one particular issue. So G.K. Chesterton would say it this way. Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Friends, I mean, I, I speak about all of this from the position of having been a Christian for a while now, finding myself still doing this in particular areas of my life. And I know that if God would just give me the courage to open the door into that dark room that I'm afraid of going into, a whole bunch of life would appear. I know there's a ton of power behind that particular door, whatever that door is, but I'm just afraid, you know. But that should tell me that there's something going on behind that door. Why do I keep, like, looking the other way when I pass it? <laughs> Something's in there. So I would ask those who are not Christians to a couple of things. Have you read any of the Gospels? There really isn't a more consequential figure in the last 2,000 years than Jesus. A bunch of people all over the world have reasonable historical uh, uh, belief that there are four books that tell his story, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Have you read any of those? If not, then I think we're at the point where we might say, why are you putting your hands in your pockets and looking the other way? They're like literally, you know, take you a week to read one of them. Why haven't you if you haven't? And then here's the other thing that I think helps everybody in the room, and that is, have you listened to the best advocates for the position you're trying to avoid? So one of the things you could do is you could go home and you could go onto YouTube and look, proof that the manuscript evidence isn't as good as they say it is. Right? Now, to, to quote a guy who's been on the news a lot lately, come on, man. Like, <laughs> like, like, just pause for a minute and ask yourself, why? Why did I go that way? Why did I take that route? Why did I say proof that the manuscript evidence isn't as great as they say it is? Why am I sitting down right now trying to disprove this? <laughs> we know why, right? It's not that it's been uh, tried and been found wanting. It's that it's been found difficult and not tried. Look at your own heart as you explore this. And friends, we have to all acknowledge and grow in this area that if someone has a minority opinion, let's all become Sid Vicious for a minute, you know, punk rockers, and let's all say, like, why is everybody trying not to talk about this? And, like, let me go to the best expert on that subject and hear their case from them. That's just good thinking. So if you're not a Christian, I encourage you to do two things. One, read one of the gospel books or a couple. And two, Listen, seek out the best advocates for Christianity. And listen to their case. Don't do the, the obviously ulterior motivated idea of like, let me go disprove this. No, if this is such a weak, unhelpful, unuseful idea, 
go to the best people that are the most persuasive and dismiss them. For instance, I'm not one of the best people or the best advocates, but I would be happy just to sit with you and say, uh, answer your questions and say, well, I think this is pretty true. I'm not sure about this and so on and so forth. So the thing you have to remember about a Christian who's bent on honesty is we don't want to lie because we think that that's going to get us into trouble. (laughs) Not in like uh, trouble like, you know, like our sins have been paid for through Christ and all that. But we do think like, I'm not going to try to win somebody by telling them lies. That's not going to turn out well. So, so you could trust me to at least tell you what I think is true. So if you're not a Christian, first of all, I commend you for listening to this message. Secondly, I would encourage you to consider the pain of Paul or the pain of the first century Christians and ask what's going on there. And I think one of the Occam's uh, best responses would be because it was really disruptive. And then I would ask you, like, are you doing the same thing? So I'd like to coin a new phrase, and it's not atheism, it's apathyism. You know? Why are you apathetic? Maybe you're not apathetic. Maybe you're avoidant. Really quickly, because we've gone very long, why did Paul keep pressing into the pain? That's the second question. Number one pain question is, (laughs) what's with all the pain? Number two question is, why did Paul keep pressing into the pain? Now I have to cut this very short. But I will simply say that the evidence doesn't stack up to Paul being a huckster. And and here's why. I would say 90% of Paul's pain, maybe more than that, came because he was pushing Jesus. And all he had to do to not be in pain was to stop. So he might have been radically self-deceived, but I don't think he was a huckster. Because... His pain could have ended immediately if he had just retired back to Tarsus and taken a tenured rabbi position. As so many people do, of course. C.S. Lewis put, put, put it this way about Jesus. He's a, either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. Well, Paul is probably not a liar. He might be a lunatic. We'll, we'll, we'll discuss that further in a mo- uh, next week but he's probably not a huckster. You know what hucksters do? A good example is Mormonism. You start something, you get enough gullible people to believe it, and then as soon as you get a critical mass of wives and treasure, you move somewhere else and practice that in isolation. You don't keep walking in new places that you know are going to beat you. You get out of town. You first tried Kansas City, and that won't work out. Then you no. Paul, we shouldn't we shouldn't ignore Paul's own response. Why, why, Paul, are you pressing into pain over and over again? And we'll just leave it with this: First Timothy one thirteen through seventeen, one of his quicker biographical moments. He says, "Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent." But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me, as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And here's kind of the the summary explanation. To the king of the ages. 
Paul believed Jesus was the Christ. He believed he was the king of the kings, the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's what Paul believed. Let me pray. Gracious God, please give us faith. Please strengthen our hearts. Please, Lord, help us to not avoid you. You are kind of scary. Give us faith to see. It's not not you exactly that's scary. Uh, It's our sin in the face of holiness that is scary. Um, Give us grace to see who you are through Christ. We pray for anyone who is hearing this and exploring this. I just pray, God, that they would they would take the, the red pill, so as, as, as it were, and at least choose to think about the questions presented today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand with me as we sing.